0: But that might be the first question we have when we talk about assurance of salvation. Is it good and appropriate for us to actually be confident that we will be with Christ someday? Can we be sure that God has not just saved but saved us? Is there place for that in the Christian life? Because some traditions would have you say no and they would like to hold you um, as it were on on a leash of good works so that you would be doing them in order to Somehow, get your place in heaven. And so the way they would hold you on that sort of tightrope is to say, "No, you can never be 100 percent sure that you're saved. There's always more to be done. There's always more that is to be um, uh, rejoiced in by the believer, to be uh, more fruit to be born, but you can never be 100 percent sure. Versus we would say, we would believe here that the scriptures are actually quite clear that much of the New Testament is written to the saints that they might have a firm confidence and belief in Christ, that they would know not only that Christ died, but that in him there is life to be had for sinners like me, and that even in myself I can see the fruits of salvation and that the Holy Spirit bearing witness inside of me gives confidence that we are Christ's. And so just to show that as sort of an introductory Um, statement today. I want to take a look at Hebrews 6. We were there last week in Hebrews looking at some of the apostasy passages and the encouragements to persevere in Christ, but Hebrews 6 is also helpful in showing us the need for an assurance of salvation. And what's interesting about this book is I just love how it does both those things. Many times the passages about apostasy are the things that get us to start questioning, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not saved in Christ, but often back-to-back with that are these very positive statements. We think of Hebrews 10 where it says, but you brothers are not of those who turn back, but of those who persevere to the saving of your souls. Look with me in Hebrews 6 then and see how this this works out. Hebrews 6, um, and we're going to read 11 through the end of the chapter, starting in verse 11. Um, well, verse 9 would actually be more appropriate. So starting in verse 9, talking about those who had fallen away, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, my goal in reading the whole passage was not to go line by line and exposit the whole thing, but just to show that the emphasis of the writer here is on taking the hearts of believers and giving them a sure foundation for their hope. Their desire is that they may have a full confidence in this hope, and this hope is described as, as we read at the end there, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the curtain behind uh, into the inner place behind the curtain and if we think about this, now some of you may be familiar with the way that the New Testament speaks about hope in contrast to the way that we often use the term, but I'll review oftentimes we are used to using the word hope as sort of um, a probability and maybe an an eager desire that may or may not happen, right? Well, I hope I can, but you never know. There's always that question of chance. But the Bible here deals with the hope in Christ as something that is not probabilistic, but absolutely sure. That is, not just something that I might desire, but it is a sure destination. Think about how it uses this term, hope. This hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Christ is. That is, it is that place which surely exists and is surely promised to his saints and is not going anywhere. It is the sure landing place for the soul and for the Christian in the end. It's absolute. And so this hope becomes then that anchor for the Christian. And this is why we can read many other places that the Bible and the writers of the New Testament, Jesus Christ himself, desires that we would have a sure confidence in our salvation. It's part of healthy Christian living is to rest that Christ has done a work on the cross and that we are surely his and that we will be with him one day. And this stabilizes our souls and keeps us from wandering from place to place, from anxiety and many other things. And so part of a healthy Christian life is assurance of salvation. My goal is to take this in two sections. So um, Lord willing, Brother Garrett is going to preach through Ruth again next week, and then the following week we're going to pick up um, assurance of salvation as it is practically. Um, How how do we earnestly pursue it, and are are there wrong ways that we go about it, and try to look at the practical part of it. Today is sort of the theology of assurance of salvation. What is the basis for it? And so we're going to spend today talking about three bases for assurance of salvation. Three things that, when um, the the theologians of old have looked at the scriptures and searched to see what it says, we think we can put these three, these assurances of salvation together in three categories. The first category then is the objective basis, which is the work of Christ. The promise of the gospel. In this first case, everything is objective. Nothing is inside of ourselves, introspective, looking at us for anything. The first basis is merely that Christ has promised his grace and salvation to those who believe. It's an objective reality that Christ came and died, was buried, rose again on the third day, and proclaimed the gospel to all his people. The second Ground for assurance of salvation, then, is the evidences of grace within the believer. And you can see that that shifts, and it may seem somewhat introverted, but as we'll see as the Bible talks about it, it doesn't make it a mere matter of conjecture, but of very specific things that the Spirit of God works in us, manifesting that change of nature that God gives us in salvation. So then the third thing, and this is not merely a repetition of the second, but it's a whole new category, the witness of the Holy Spirit within us. That is to say, not merely what the Holy Spirit does in us, manifesting evidences, but the direct witness of the Holy Spirit in what he causes us to see and to believe and we'll see that there's some errors that you can fall into there, thinking that this is maybe some kind of secret revelation of the Holy Spirit where he tells me secretly, you're saved, and that's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about something very specific, that when you, when this change is wrought, when your eyes are made to see that you are bearing witness with the Spirit, and the Spirit is specifically bearing witness to you that you are God's. Ephesians talks about this as the guarantee of the, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our Inheritance in Christ. So, if we can, we're going to try to look at these three things. Um, And so, as we do that, if you would turn with me, um, I'm trying to think where I want to have us go first. We're going to end up in Romans 8. That's a good place to start. Um, But as we're going there, I just want us to see a couple things from Scripture about how the saints of old have set their hope on Christ as a sure anchor of the soul. So, um, and you can turn these places if you want to or you can just listen. I'm going to go to a couple places. Job chapter 19, if you like listening to Handel's Messiah around holidays you'll remember this refrain. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Job 19 25 and 26 says this. Um, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. (laughs) Interesting. So Job, in in his difficult... Uh, sufferings beyond what we can often put ourselves in, he rests on this and he says, but I know not just someone else in the future, but I myself in my flesh with my eyes shall see God, my Redeemer. David, likewise, when he had sinned with Bathsheba in Psalm 32, we read these words. He does not say, um, blessed is the man who has not sinned, um, or the one who in the end happens to stumble into salvation. He says at the beginning of Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here, David s- in his time of sin and in his time of trial, sets his heart on the fact that God's assurance of salvation is not based on my sinlessness, but based on his sure pardon of sin. And one more place here, then Paul in 2 Timothy, and I was really helped by this this week, so um, for those who I want to give credit where credit is due, I worked through this, um, this is a, a book written by a whole host of authors. There's a a different Baptist pastor um, wrote a paragraph, or sorry, a whole chapter on each chapter in the confession. And so as we go through um, there, I'm I'm getting my notes and helpful reminders from these guys here. And uh, someone brought us to um, this section in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul talks about his life and um, this author was recounting the notes of um, Ryle, that uh, Anglican bishop, when he was talking about this, and made a very helpful comment. So if I can find it while I'm talking. 2 Timothy 4 and says 6 through 8 says this. his appearing, And the interesting thing here again is Paul, who can count himself the chief among sinners for persecuting the church, says that the righteous judge will surely reward him in the end. And so Ryle says these things. He says we have, we have Paul looking in three directions. He looks down, and he looks back, and he looks forward, and he has assurance in all three directions. And I think this is helpful for us, right? So first he looks down. He looks at his death soon approaching. And and he faces it without fear. He knows, my flesh is being poured out as a drink offering. You don't get any sort of sign there that he's he's wavering. He's actually glorying in this fact that God has counted him worthy to suffer with Christ. So he looks at his death without fear. He looks at his past with a clean conscience. After having persecuted the church, he looks back and he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have held fast to the faith. I have kept the faith, right? Again, not saying I have been sinless since the day of my conversion, but that he has kept the faith. And so in this, Paul looks back on his life with a clean conscience, knowing the sure forgiveness of Christ. Did you have a question? You're about ready to raise your hand? or No, okay, sorry. <laughs> um, and then finally, Paul then looks forward to that day of the Lord when the righteous judge comes with confidence. So... With these exhortations, I'm, I'm hopefully just giving everyone here a reason to think not only that assurance of salvation is um, good, but that it is helpful, it is, it is healthy, it is following in the example of the saints before, and it is um, a gift of Jesus through the cross. So that took us a while to get back to Romans 8, but that's where we're going to go first. Romans chapter 8, we're looking at the first Um, root of assurance, the the primary basis of assurance is found in the work of Christ. And this will be a a familiar refrain to us who have been studying through this, but having come through the, um, the exposition of the gospel, the Apostle Paul here at the beginning of the chapter makes this exclamation when he talks about what Christ has done. He says, therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we have already said, this statement, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, is an absolute and sure statement. It is absolutely untouchable. Jesus has done a work, and all who are in him are without condemnation. It means not your conscience, not the devil, not a brother and sister, not an enemy, not a friend. No one can condemn the one who is in Christ and send that one to a place of disfavor with God or punishment or hell. And this, as we see then, is not, again, based on anything that we have done. It's purely based on Christ, his work. It's not an introspective practice. It's it's one that looks outward and says, this is what Christ has done. And now, that that may seem like, okay, fine and dandy, but um, how am I connected with that? Because it seems like we could... Maybe view this in a wrong way and say, "Well, that just shifts the point of assurance, right? I know, okay, those who are saved are saved, but how do I know I'm one of the saved, right? How does that work?" And that's, um, if we, some of you who remember going through the whole Christ, we talk a little bit about that. But essentially, that's just that's doing the same thing again and again. But the whole point here is that at any point in the Christian life, you ask, "Do you believe that Jesus died for your sin?" Well, yes, I believe. Well then, Christ is a sure foundation for your rest and for your hope. But as as a as a help, as a as a as a fuller assurance given to the saints, the book of First John is helpful with th- this. He is really good at plugging the Christian in to that position and say, "Well, how do I? If I am, if I am to consider the the fruits of righteousness, how am I to see?" that I am Christ, or that someone is a Christian. And very interestingly, again, oftentimes we read the book of 1 John, like Hebrews, and we think, wow, these absolute statements of John are just hard to reckon with. Maybe I'm not a Christian, because I still sin, and I see I see these little statements from John where it sounds like Christians don't sin anymore, and these sorts of things. But I'm going to read through a uh, uh, Sort of shotgun of passages from the book of First John to show you that the point of writing these things is to give assurance of salvation, not to make the believer question, but to help the believer rest in Christ. And so if I were to go through these, let's um, stay with me if you can. So first John chapter two and verse three, we read this, it says, "And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we, keep, if we keep his commandments. That by this we come to know him if we keep his commandments. Chapter 3 is full of this sort of language. Chapter 3 and verse 14 says this. Um, I could probably just read this whole section and emphasize it. Um, 14, for we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's that objective. By this we know love, he has laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but indeed in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, what? God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Look at um, verse, sorry, chapter 5 then, and verse 13. And He says this at the end of His letter, He's concluding, I write these things. And I think it's appropriate, most writers that I, uh, that in our circles, would take this to mean I write these things, I write this whole letter to you, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. These things are written that we may know. So this brings us to what would be called the second evidence or the second root of assurance, and that is the work of God in us. And lest we start to take 1 John, as these absolute con- these comments, out of context, as if when he says, um, by this we know that we, have, that we know him if we keep his commandments, if we were to stop there and say, oh, so we only know that we know him if we keep all of God's commandments... No, that would be to misunderstand John, and I'm not just weaseling out of this. This is just the way John writes, because if we go f- previously, he has already talked about this. He says, if we, confess our, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John is not talking about a category of Christians that don't sin, and they're the ones that can somehow reach to a full assurance of faith. He's talking about a way of life, the Christian is not a Christian who is indifferent to the commands of God, but treasures them and keeps them, and when he breaks them, confesses his sins to the Lord and rests in Christ for forgiveness. This is an evidence of faith in the believer. Likewise, so there are are four things that I'm looking at. First, a Christian knows that he is a sinner, feels his need for a Savior. Second, he repents and turns away from his sin, endeavoring to do what is right before God. Of course, not in all things not sinning, but this is the position, the posture of his heart. God has given him a new nature. And three, then this desire is to obey, to keep the commands of God. And fourth, as we saw, the affection that one then has for the saints, for the body of Christ, is a sure confidence of salvation. That is, Paul, or James, sorry, John says... You can't say you're a Christian and despise those whom Christ has bought with his blood. But in this, when you, when you love the saints, then you know that Christ has done a work in you. And so this is the second root of assurance. It is the fruit that God has borne in the heart of a believer, in the life of a believer. And then let's look lastly to this third root, the third um, place where we might take assurance of salvation And this is going to turn us right back to Romans eight. So we went Romans 8:1. We took a little bit of a, an excursion to 1 John to see how he talks about assurance, but going right back then to Romans 8, towards the end of the chapter. Um, and these are just picking a few select texts from the New Testament. I think we can see these patterns in almost in, I would say, in every book of the New Testament. Um, Romans 8:15 through16. If we were to read those. <clears throat> and I'm gonna I'm just gonna read a little bit more than that. It's always good to get some context. Verse twelve. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are God of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And I appreciate how the um, commentator that I was reading this week helped me focus in and look at this text and realize Okay, so the first part is talking about the work that the Holy Spirit does in your life. Now, the, the Apostle Paul could have just gone on to say, okay, so the Spirit helps you live in this way, and the Spirit um, gives you assurance. But he emphasizes the fact, but the Spirit, the spirit himself bears witness. So there, there are all these things that he does, and the fruits that he is bearing in your life. But then there is also that the Spirit himself is bearing witness with your spirit. And what what does this mean? Well, the whole whole tenor of this is to say that the, the posture of the heart has been changed, right? It's by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. We've received the spirit of adoption. And so the affection that is in our hearts toward God, the ability to see and long for and delight in the beauty of the gospel is a work of the Spirit. When we relate to Christ as a son relates to his father, then this is the spirit of adoption. And so when when we know that these things are in us, when we have those things, we know that God has given us his Holy Spirit. John is clear that no one confesses that Jesus is Lord without the spirit of Christ witnessing in him. So if those things are yours, brothers and sisters, then the spirit of Christ has been given to you. And if the spirit of Christ has been given to you, this is what Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Paul through Ephesians says about the Spirit. He says, "Um, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is, who is, that is, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is a wonderful truth. The the Holy Spirit being the seal of the adoption in Christ, the one who has given us the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit himself is the guarantee. So just by summary, I'll restate the three things that we talked about and then see if there's any questions or comments to help one another as we think about assurance to be assured of our salvation. But first, when we're doubting our salvation, we say Christ has died. He was buried. He rose again. And this was in fulfillment of the scriptures. It was to bear the curse of Adam and the penalty for my sin. Notice nothing in that was about me at all. Christ has done that. And if I, I'm affirming that, saying yes, I believe that. Secondly, I, Christ through, has evidenced faith in my life. There has been fruit born, right? I want to obey the Lord. Though I don't do it, I, I confess my sin to the Lord, and I would earnestly desire to do what the Lord has commanded. I love the law of God. And thirdly, I know that the Spirit of God has taken the things of Christ, that is, the objective realities of Christ, and he has communicated those to me in such a way that now I look at those things of Christ not merely as something that is um, a bare fact, but as something that I love, as something that I treasure. I look at those things as something which is worth the whole world and beyond right? And that, I say, the Spirit himself bears witness within my spirit that I am Christ's. I cry out, Abba, Father, because the Spirit is at work. So those three things, the Spirit, the evidences of grace, and the sure objective reality of the promise of the gospel given by Christ. These are the the three roots of assurance, and we'll try to be more practical then next week. Any. Thoughts, or questions, or confusions, or um, <laughs> something that we could just talk about to encourage one another with this morning. If not, then we will we will pray and close. Our Jesus, how wonderful it is to stand in the shadow of the cross, um, with Your righteousness, not ours, by grace and not our works. Because in that salvation, there is not only room, but sure ground and um, and persuasion and confidence in the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. And Lord, what a, what a wonderful blessing to walk in this life with a, a confidence that though we are taking one step at a time, we are walking closer to our death, unless you were to return sooner, Lord, we, we are headed towards our physical death, and yet it is not something that we f- look at with fear, but rather we rejoice in being able to suffer with Christ. And we look at our past, Lord, and we may do that by the decree of God with a clear conscience, not based on what I have done. Clearly, we know we are sinners, but we look at it saying, I do not stand condemned before Christ. All that is in the past and all that is in the future that I will commit is nonetheless purchased and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And, Lord, that at that we may also say, Lord, not that I would sin that grace may abound, but I desire to do your will. I love your law. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned continually before you. Thank you for the blood of Christ. And Lord, then beyond this we realize that if these two things are happening, surely the Holy Spirit himself bears witness to us. The, our spirits cry out within ourselves, Lord, we, we love you. Lord, you are not just a story. That may possibly be true. But I have come to see and to treasure you, your blood, your righteousness, the beauty of your law. And you have sent your Holy Spirit, therefore, into me as a seal. Lord, we thank you for this confidence. What a wonderful thing to live in a world not skeptically or um, living uh, in a way that our salvation would be a matter of probability, maybe, maybe, But Lord, a sure thing, I am taking steps in this life that you have given me to take, but they are all bringing me closer to that hope which is sure, an anchor of our souls. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus, and help us now in your name. Amen.